Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. I want to uh, tell you that I was not only honored, but a bit conflicted when I saw the uh, flyer advancing on the cities I pastor in Globe. Some of you don't know where that is. It's 90 miles or 60 miles east of here in the hills. And uh, it's a city, I guess. We have a mall. The Tri-City Mall, it's called Walmart. Somebody was saying, it was asked the other day because uh, there was a visitor in town, which is nice. And, uh, and so they said, uh, do you know everybody in town? He said, no, I don't know everybody in town, but everywhere I go, I know somebody. And, uh, and so that's the way it is in a small town. But cities are really made of a bunch of small towns. And so I want to minister this morning on cities uh, out of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, if you have a Bible this morning. Amen. Xiao Zhong arrived in Beijing's West Railway Station Wednesday, May 23, 2007. He brought a black plastic bag with all of his possessions from his small rural community. And when he did, when he moved into Beijing, he irreversibly tipped the demographic scale of the world. At that point in time, and that's probably a fictitious story, so how do you know the one millionth visitor, how do you know which one? Well, that one. So, you know, who knows? But at that point in time, the world became an urban world. Moved from being an agrarian world, a rural world, a world of small communities, moved into a world of urban population. Doug Sanders says in Arrival City, the largest migration in history, he said, what will be remembered about the 21st century is the great and final shift of the human population out of rural agricultural life into cities. We will end the century as a totally urban species. In the introduction of the book, Why Cities Matter, Tim Keller notes three different kinds of things. One, from The Guardian, which is the newspaper in Great Britain, Uh, Today, cities are the global economy. The 40 largest cities or mega regions account for two-thirds of the world's output. From the Journal of Foreign Policy, he notes that the age of nations is over. The urban population has begun. And from Albert Moeller, uh, this much is clear. Cities are where the people are, and cities shape the world. And migration to cities reflects a human quest for permanence. The human desire to have a secure and permanent dwelling place. 
And when we begin to think about that, there's the human needs of achievement, the human needs of recognition. When the young Chinese man moved to Beijing, he's looking for work. It's the opportunities to secure a destiny. Uh, Jesus described it as a promise that the fruit would remain. I'll give you fruit that will remain. Jesus wept over two things. One is uh, the uh, trivia question about the shortest verse in the Bible, Bible, which is actually not in Greek, the shortest verse, but uh, Jesus wept over Lazarus. And he also wept over the city of Jerusalem. And I want to talk to you about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Father, we love you. We ask your grace this morning and your wonderful blessing on our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That shift to an urban population gives us quite a compelling challenge. We begin to think about it. We have to have revival. We kind of think that God will do that. Revival is a sovereign move of God. It's something that God does sovereignly. We haven't seen a move of God for a long time. This thing, that thing. But the reality is that revival is our personal responsibility. We have to take ownership of that dynamic. Evangelicals are largely suburban. Uh, evangelicals are largely sheltered in rural and semi-rural areas. And if you begin to think about cities, uh, evangelicals have largely steered aside from uh, the cities and particularly the inner cities uh, that are in our generation. If you think of a city as a factory, it shapes it, it ships it uh, out of the city. It is the place of influence. The 90% of the economic output of the United States comes from metro areas. The uh, five largest uh, metro areas in America account for 23% of the output. 40 metropolitan areas in the world, 40 metropolitan areas drive the global economy or the world economy. The top 10 regions in the world are home to only 6.5% of the population, but they produce 43% of the world's product. Economic power of New York City exceeds, just New York City exceeds that of the entire nation of Mexico. UN projections are by 2050, 68% of the population in the world will be urban and live in a developed region. Uh, developed areas will cover 86.2% of the population. The world urban population will equal the entire population of 2004. What the population of the world was in 2004, that population number will be in urban areas or in cities by 2050. Raymond Bakke made a decision. He planted himself in inner Chicago in 1960. He's gone back since then, looked at it. He said uh, there are a lot of obstacles, uh, the race riots of the 60s, all those different kinds of things. Uh, and he says that little has changed. 
Today, more than half of our community, talking about Chicago, is foreign-born. About 35% are black, 28% Asian, 21% Hispanic, 16% white, white ethnic, and Native American. Uh, Tim Linthicum writes about Los Angeles. He says it's really 124 different cities. Economically, transportation-wise, they are tied together, has four international airports, has common radio, TV stations, has uh, uh, one county, parts of four counties are covered in that area. It's an area larger than Indiana. It's uh, home to both the richest neighborhoods, Beverly Hills, and the poorest neighborhoods, Compton, uh, Watts, uh, Pomona, that's where I grew up, Pomona. Uh, cities, uh, one of the most complicated cities in America. It has 52 inner cities with slums and squatter settlements. The Wilshire District, the Wilshire District of Los Angeles has a half a million residents. It's larger in area than Pittsburgh or Albuquerque. It's culturally diverse. 53% Hispanic, 22% Asian, 8% black, 17% white. The district, Wilshire District, has the largest Central American population uh, in, in the U.S., Ethiopian, Korean populations in, in L.A., and the Korean population is the largest concentration of Koreans outside of Korea. 60% of the Wilshire District is under 35. 42% are single 67% never attend church. And the bureaucracy that runs that district is not saved. They're not Christian. They don't pretend to be Christian. They're not interested in it. And that's one of the larger metropolitan areas in America. God began the creation in the garden. He ends it in a heavenly city. And you and I are in, involved and responsible for populating that heavenly city. When we read the book of Acts, it's very interesting. Paul targeted cities. He went to Syria, uh, Antioch, Antioch in Syria, uh, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. These are the major places that Paul ministered. They're all crucial to the spread of the gospel. Uh, he aimed additionally to go to Rome. Uh, the focus on the gospel uh, in the book of Acts, Adolf Harnack, uh, 1909 study of the book of Acts. Uh, it says the mission in the book of Acts, when you read through the book of Acts, the mission was largely carried out uh, for the most part in cities. Uh, and even as uh, Pastor Campbell preached on, uh, on Thursday night, Philip uh, chapter 8, verse 40, he preached the gospel, uh, Philip, he preached the gospel to all the cities. The city has a spiritual impact, and we have to kind of grasp that. Cain is the first city builder. He named his city Enoch. He built that to secure for himself a safe haven. If you send me out of the garden, what am I going to do? If you send me out from the midst of my family, I'll be alone. I'll be isolated. And he makes a city and to make a name for himself. We follow the Genesis story. We go through Nimrod. We go to Babylon. All of these are cities. They are spiritual entities that have a tremendous impact. They are capable of directing and changing a man's spiritual life. They bring their 
their force and their power, their spiritual dominion against human souls and changed lives. And uh, it is a fearful thing to begin to think of the impact of cities. What happens in a city is exported out to all the world, the major news networks, the major uh, 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 movie and, and uh, media outlets are located in cities and they export their stuff all over the world. So we need to transform the city. And we have in this passage of scripture, we have these strangers and aliens that are seeking a heavenly city. The agency that God has chosen to change the city is the church. The church is the agent and community of the kingdom of God. H.G. Wells made the point he says, why here is the most radical proposal ever presented to the mind of man. H.G. Wells is not talking as a Christian. Here's the most radical proposal ever presented to the mind of man, the proposal to, pre to replace the present world order with God's order and the kingdom of God. That's what transforming the city is about. It's about replacing the present world order with God's order. Leslie Newbigin used to be a missionary to India precisely because the church is here and now. It is a real foretaste of heaven. Because of that, she can witness and be the instrument of, king, of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Sociologist Rodney Stark, because I want to share that we're not talking, I'll give you all that data, where it's not a hopeless situation. When we begin to think about it, Rodney Stark is sociology. He's not a Christian. He just studied, uh, studied Christianity and, and wrote The Triumph of Christianity, another couple of books about Christianity. He said in, 50, in the year 50, so this is right after Christ's crucifixion, Christianity wasn't called Christianity then. It was mocked as Christianity then. I had 1,397 followers. Now, I have no idea how he got back there and counted them all. <clears throat> but that's what he said. And so 1,397 believers, which is equivalent to disciples. Those terms are equivalent in the New Testament. Christians only in there three times, and it's a derogatory term. So we're believers or we're disciples, according to the New Testament. Said by the year 150, there were perhaps 39,500 believers. By 350, there were 30 million believers, and they literally had turned the world upside down. It's not a hopeless dynamic that we're talking about. The New Testament era is filled with cities just as chaotic and overwhelming as ours. Eric Hoffer, in his book, True Believer, Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements, he said, those who would transform the city, if you're going to transform the city, you cannot do it by breeding and captaining discontent. That is, you can't breed disruptive discontent just for doing that. You can't demonstrate the reasonableness of desirability or desirability of the intended change or by coercing people, they must, the, the person that's going to transform the city must know how to kindle a fire of extravagant hope. The church is the agent and community. Let me talk to you about ministering. Three essential ingredients. 
One is crisis conversion. There has to be crisis conversion. People cannot ooze their way into the kingdom of God or suddenly say, oh, I woke up and I was a Christian today. We get saved in a crisis. Most everybody in here that's genuinely saved was in a crisis in their life. When somebody asked them, somebody asked them to come to church, why don't you come to a movie? Why don't you come to this outreach? Why don't you come over here with me? Why don't you come to a Bible study? They're going through a crisis, and Jesus Christ worked into their life and saved them out of a crisis. No doubt, when my life was changed, when I went to an altar, I got up, I went to school the next day. I was a different creation because of what God had done in my life in a crisis in my life. We have to have empowered discipleship. This is not simply discipleship uh, in name only. We have people that, well, I think I'll go to this other church over here, Pastor. Uh, I love you. We love you. Uh, We'll always appreciate everything you've ever done for us, but we're going to go somewhere else. And they're just like us. They, they talk about discipleship. They talk about evangelism. They talk about missions. They talk about the love of God. They never talk about paying your tithe to support the missions. And they never talk about the immorality that is rampant in the world. And they never talk about sin, which is why you want to escape. You don't want to pay your stinking tithe? Well, make it God's tithe. And it won't be stinking no more. And we have to have focused church planting. Fruitfulness is not just the multiplication of believers. It's the multiplication of the churches, which is what you read about in the book of Acts. Roland Allen, turn of the last century, wrote a couple of books. And he was looking at Paul and Paul's method of evangelizing the world. And in the book, Missionary Methods, he wrote about excuses. He wrote about essentials that make the difference between Paul and what Paul did and what much of the evangelical world does today. He says the main difference between Paul and the evangelical world today is that Paul established churches and the evangelical world establishes mission stations or schools. And there's a huge difference between those things. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned and preached, the Bible says, three Sabbaths. Other people say he was there at a maximum, maximum of five months, and he left a church. Are you with me? Paul preached three Sabbaths, left a church that he wrote two letters back to. We know the church survived, and we know that he went back to it about five years later and is still a thriving community living for Jesus Christ. This is not a 45-year mission station where you take people out of their their, uh, culture and bring them to a little isolated place and pump them full of religious theology and then you turn them back and they've been wasted, have nobody to witness to, have no work and no nothing. You isolate them and fill them through with a bunch of knowledge and then you release them back and they become twice the child of hell that they were before they got saved. He 
He said Paul's pioneering didn't depend on starting a church with a certain class of people. It's wearisome to hear about people, oh, I'm going to get some doctors and lawyers in my church so we can support it. Oh, praise God. We had a couple of doctors in the Globe Church. They're not there. You can't depend on a strategic locale. Globe is hardly strategic. We're really not afraid of terrorists attacking Globe. And it doesn't depend on the moral or the social condition of the city. Said so those are just excuses people use. Well, I have to reach a certain kind of people. I have to reach, a, uh, we have to have a strategic city here with commerce and this thing and that thing. Uh, and, and he spends three whole chapters saying, those, those, that's not what Paul did. Paul didn't just pick strategic cities. He didn't organize it that way. Paul had a couple of things going for him. And one was that he was launched out of a Holy Spirit church and separated for the work of God by the Holy Spirit. Then he wrote about essentials. He wrote a whole chapter on miracles. A chapter on miracles. This is what occurred where Paul preached. He wrote one about money. And he wrote, he wrote it about money as coming from the people in that city that got saved. They're the ones that need to support that local indigenous church. And not be crying for mama all the time. He wrote one on preaching, which Pastor Mitchell hit last night. And then he wrote a chapter on authority and discipline. Those are the things that marked Paul's ministry. Andrew Blackwood, the great Presbyterian minister, he understood about preaching the gospel in a hostile environment. And he said the minister must deal with souls. And however sensitive, he must deal with the issue of sin. The pastor represents men before God, and he represents God before men. And sin means wrong relations or a lack of right relations. And it's the lack of rightness that involves wrong relations with others, and a man's conflicted within himself because of sin. This is what makes ministry difficult, he says. People have sin in relation to others, in relation to themselves, as well as to God. And here's an issue, he says, of much unavailing prayer, because uh, to come to the presence of God means that we have to deal with the issues of sin. That's what the altar call is all about. And I'm not going to repeat the sermon. You can get the tape. We must deal with that, the sin that so easily besets us and separates us from God. Another man said it's the conviction. This is what Roland Allen wrote about Paul. And he said it was the conviction that the gospel was the power of God. As the power of God to live the new life. That's what you get when you get saved. And so it caused... Paul to press for a decision about the gospel. He expected his hearers to be moved. Evangelism, Roland Allen wrote, was not simply about sowing seed. Now, there's not, nothing wrong with sowing seed, 
but it's preaching for a decision. It's a preaching. He always, he says, Paul always contrived to bring his hearers to a point of decision. None of the indeterminate, inconclusive talking which we are apt to hear today. He expected a moral response and conversion without a conversion of lifestyle, he said, is no conversion at all. And yet he went on, he said, the reason is that many are afraid to take the responsibility which morally rests upon us. Now, this is a profound statement. As a pastor, as a witness, as a testimony of God, we have a moral responsibility to, and these are the words he uses, of shaking the lap. Now, that's the turn of the last century. What does shaking the lap mean? I don't know. But I think it has something to do with making mama happy, unhappy. Which with, it has something to do with irritating the mother of the child you're disciplining. We have a moral responsibility to shake her tree by dealing with sin, hers, and her kids. We have to have an empowered discipleship. An empowered discipleship. Discipleship is not simply about Bible IQ. Paul Tuff in How Children Succeed writes uh, something that's much closer. Discipleship is actually much closer to raising kids. Uh, and he says it's about teaching them grit, curiosity, and the hidden power of character. See, discipleship is not simply a program. It's not simply the dynamic of getting Bible information into this canister of skin and hormones. It's about actually shaping and being shaped as a believer in Jesus Christ. We are spiritual creatures. And whenever we interact with other people, our spirit, our spirit is interacting with their spirit. That's a kind of a frightening mystery, but there's a reality there. And discipleship is an impartation. Discipleship is an impartation of life. It's an interaction of the spiritual part of us as well as our outward behavior. And one of the things that is missing in our generation is the real connection with the saving experience and discipleship. J.D. Greer, I don't know how to pronounce his name, said the gospel is not supposed to be our ticket into heaven. It is to be an entirely new basis for how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to others. It is to be our source from which everything flows. And he's saying there that in salvation, you begin a new life in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Dallas Willard said there has simply been no consistent general teaching or practice under the heading of discipleship among evangelicals of the last 40 years. That's the state of the Christian world in America. None that would be recognizable as discipleship. It says there isn't anything being printed. There isn't anything going out. When I want to read about discipleship, I have to go all the way back to the Jesus People movement and the 1970s. It's all been replaced now. 
with feel-good Christianity and coaching and mentoring and internship and every other thing except what the Bible calls it, which is disciple. Jesus made disciples. That's what he made. And that's who he entrusted the ministry to. And here's the difference. Empowered discipleship, Jesus gave them the authority to go and do what he showed them how to do. He did not just give them an exam. Ten questions on, first, what is the definition of discipleship? This most recent version of evangelicalism lacks a theology of discipleship. Specifically, it lacks a clear teaching on how what happens when you get saved continues on without a break into an ever fuller life in the kingdom of God. Salvation is not an isolated event. It's not just an event. It's a beginning let me read to you some uh, testimonies. I've been doing some interviews over the last couple of years. Uh, here's what one of our uh, leaders and uh, successful pastors and, and church planning pastors says. Uh, I have a number of them. Uh, the thing that really grabbed our imagination was this whole thing about discipleship. We also understood from the New Testament that being a disciple of Jesus also meant that we would follow a man who was a, a God-anointed leader and become a disciple of a man. A leader would prepare specifically relationships and opportunities called discipleship so we could find our destiny in the kingdom of God. The burden, here's the, here's the kicker. The burden of discipleship was not on the pastor, but on the disciple. His sermons, his ministry, the church, all of that would be of value in a disciple's life. Nonetheless, it's very much a personal issue between me and God. The relationship between the pastor and the disciple is not just casual. It involved God and it involved an attachment or a loyalty to someone else God had anointed and placed in a position of leadership. One of, one of these men was asked, uh, uh, so how did you learn how, to, uh, how to, uh, to pastor and all that? And he said, by example, that's all I can say. It was by following an example. It wasn't some one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, personal encounter, deep, uh, deep conversations at Starbucks uh, and, uh, and just all the heavy-duty revies uh, about what was going on in the kingdom and, and some of the, you know, some of the obscure scriptures. It wasn't that at all. I learned by example. I didn't even have a lot of interaction with the pastor until years later when I went back on staff. I wanted to be what he was. I wanted to serve God the way he served God. Another one says, I saw a Christian. When I came into church, I had my, you know, I was a young man. I had all of my teenage stuff. I had my little crowd and the way I acted. I, that's who I was. I was. I was somebody like that. And when I looked at the, the pastor, I saw a Christian. I did not see a man trying to act like another generation. I saw a Christian, and that's what I wanted to be. That's, that's exampleship. William Willimon, Duke University Divinity School. He was in a, 
a meeting with the faculty, and one of the faculty members said, hey, uh, is anybody in here appalled by the way our divinity students are behaving? He's talking about adultery in divinity school, kind of like in churches. Is anybody appalled that they are not behaving as biblical Christians? And so he, he responded and began to, to think about that. Because in a classroom, we're asked to learn a certain amount of material. In fact, you're given a syllabus or you're given a test at the beginning. And so you got to learn all this and you get out and you answer the questions, right? You get a passing grade, you go on to the next class. Discipleship isn't one of those. So what would happen if the instructor said at the beginning of class that I want you to be involved and take the life you're living and I want you to follow, not just follow instruction, but I want you to follow, I want you to be like me. You imagine one of your professors saying that? One of these guys that comes to, to class every day stoned? Out of his mind, his marriage is a wreck. He boozes it up all night just to go to sleep. Uh, is uh, visiting a shrink just to figure out who he is and what he's doing. And, uh, and he says, I want you to be like me. But see, the unanimous outcry would be, no, I'm not here for that. I want to learn something. But you see, discipleship operates in exactly that arena. We can preach no more than we are. Our spirit can interact with other people's spirit no more or beyond, not beyond what we are. And here we're, we're in a, a, an arena that, that we're talking about discipleship and so many in our churches now see it as a program, uh, see it as a way to do the right behaviors and then we get out of, you know, in globe, I got to confess, it, the whole thing, how do I get out of globe? I don't want to be trapped here the rest of my life. How do I get out of globe? I know, I'll be a disciple. <laughs> a real disciple. He speaks from his heart because he is too able, too eager to be able to refrain from speaking. His subject has gripped him. He speaks of what he knows, and he knows it by experience. The truth which he imparts is his own truth. He knows its force. He is speaking almost as much to relieve his own mind as to convert his hearer, and yet he is eager to convert his hearer as, uh, as to relieve his own mind. For his mind can only be relieved by sharing the new truth. And his truth is not shared until another has received it. He's talking about the impartation. I want you to have what I have. It may, oh, it sounds so presumptuous. But that's how discipleship works. It works by example. Alan's observation, he, he uh, put a whole chapter on authority and discipline. And it's very interesting because without discipline, you can't be changed. He says, without judgment, he's talking about Paul, Paul's preaching, uh, preaching of judgment and, and judgment to come and all those different kinds. Paul's preaching all of this. Uh, and without that dynamic, without that hammer, he says, the process of human life comes to no 
vivid conclusion and moral discipline will have no harvest. It's exact, it's, it's discipleship. Here's these sojourners in our scripture. They are seeking these all. And so probably we're talking about the patriarchs. This is chapter 11 of Hebrews, and that's got the hall of fame of faith in it and, and the big statements of faith and living by faith. These all. And they ventured out to an unknown place. See, we have a compelling, a compelling bunch of data about the cities, a compelling uh, kind of a, a, a challenge, a compelling challenge to reach this world. To the ends of the, of the earth, to the ends of the earth is the dynamic. And so we have a compelling challenge. And so here's Abraham leaving his homeland. Uh, we can uh, talk about Joseph betrayed within his own homeland and, uh, and all of these that, that all died in faith, in faith. And so it's very interesting when we begin to ponder that because they're all traveling. They're all on a journey. They're seeking a permanent dwelling place with God. But that leads them to places that God ordains them to be. And in that process, God blesses. In that process, God sustains them. In that process, God molds them, shapes them. They're the patriarchs. They're the fathers of the faith. They're the ones that give us the, the moral example and that dynamic. And, and we ponder and we think, well, what if I leave? What happens out there? I don't know. I don't know. But we have these tremendous words in the Bible. Perhaps. Who knows? It may be. These words are found in the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, where the minor prophet, these, uh, these, uh, they're, not minor, they're not minors like copper miners and they're not minors like children. They're minor prophets just because they're short books. That's the only reason they're called minor prophets. So Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi, all of those, uh, those guys. And so those words, perhaps, those guys are calling the nation to repent. They're actually saying, turn to God. Turn to God with your whole heart. If you put everything in God's lap and in God's hands and you surrender to God, if you surrender to God, who knows what can happen? I know what can happen if you surrender to the devil. And there's only two options. But if you surrender to God, who knows? God, they're looking, looking for a city. And the Bible says God has prepared for them a city. Maybe God has prepared for you a city. Who knows? Does, does discipleship come with guarantees? Not really. Uh, do, what about what about my paycheck? What about what about this thing? What about that thing? What about buying a house? What about having three cars? What about a white picket fence? What about all of these things? Well, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. God knows, and I do believe I know that if you surrender to God, it'll turn out all right. It'll turn out turn out for the gooder. I use that word because I'm a scholar. <laughs> Your life will get gooder and gooder. 
to give you a clue. I got to say this. I have to say this. I didn't learn to preach. And I know some of you are saying you still haven't, but that, we'll ignore that for a moment. I didn't learn to preach out of a book. I didn't learn to preach by going to seminary. I didn't learn to preach by going to school. I learned to preach by watching my pastor preach. That's where I learned. That's where I learned how to, how to interact with people. That's where I learned at least the little bit that I know about people's skills. Uh, I learned that by watching a man that was my pastor, and I did that because I wanted to be like him. I wanted that kind of ministry. I wanted that kind of a, a zeal. I wanted that kind of a heart. I wanted that kind of, of, a, of a life that would lead me into an arena where I could feel the anointing of God and the blessing of God and the reality of heaven operating through my life. That's what I wanted, and I got it by following a man. Who knows? These all died in faith, having seen something that they wanted. That opportunity to turn back, they had that opportunity, and the real, real kind of dynamic and the innuendo that's moving through that passage of Scripture is that there's a, there's a thought process, and it's the dynamic that had their mind not been set on the heavenly thing, they would have had opportunity to turn back. But they didn't because their mind was set on a heavenly dimension, on another dimension of life, another level of life. Their mind was set there. They saw something. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? It's a really quite a famous question was asked by Dr. Howard Carter, the British archaeologist. He had been digging in the Royal Valley of Egypt for six years. 1922, other archaeologists had dug, they left, they said it's a burnover field, nothing else is happening. Dr. Carter saw some wooden statues, some different kinds of things, kept digging, 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 and he asked an aide, when they opened up Tutankhamun's tomb, what do you see? Do you see anything? And he said, well, I see animals, statues, chests, gilded chariots, carved cobras, uh, ointment boxes, vases, daggers, jewels, a throne, a wooden figure of a goddess, a, a hint of gold everywhere, a hand-carved coffin, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever. Can you see? Do you see anything? Because vision's really important. It's really important. My cities, Zechariah says, shall again spread. My cities shall spread out through prosperity. You know, it's really possible that God's prepared a city for you. That's not outside the realm of possibility. God can have a neighborhood for you. God can have a key contact for you. God can have a place where you're going to begin to establish things for eternity. 
I used to teach biology, ecology, different kinds of things. I used to, to think, you know, because most of the time students come in, they do the test, they believe, you never see them, never hear from them again. And, and very interesting that sometimes you'll get somebody that'll just catch it. And they'll come and they'll talk to you and they'll want to hear more and they want to do this, they want to do that. And, they, and that student is why I kept teaching. Can I tell you, you can get a new convert that'll come to ask you questions. It makes it worthwhile. It makes it all happen. Someone has said that evangelism is labor intensive. I believe it largely is. Labor intensive. Discipleship is labor intensive. Every city is hard. It's all, it's all hard work. But if you have any kind of self-esteem or, 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 or respect for yourself, you know that after a hard work, after a day of hard work where you've accomplished something, there's such a satisfaction and such a grace that comes into your life. I know that there are people here that are called. There's no doubt. I know that there are people here who have a destiny. It's way beyond what you could ever, ever think in your own mind. But you see, this is the chapter on faith. You have to begin that journey. You have to begin to aim your life for all that God has for you. And you know what? Maybe it's a city. Maybe it's a nation. Maybe it's a community. Maybe it's a handful of souls that will make heaven their home. And they would have made it no other way except somebody believed God and had a vision. They saw something. They saw something. That's what I have. Lord bless. Pastor. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the VBPH Sermon Podcast. When you listen to these inspiring messages, you are helping to send missionaries from the Chandler Bible Conference in September. If you loved what you heard, please send this message to someone that needs to hear it. 
Then, leave us a review using the links in the show notes so that everyone who wants to find this podcast will see it when they search for it. We cannot thank you enough. See you next time.